Hey, this is Ryan Fitzpatrick, and you are listening to the EA Podcast with Eric Allen. Take it away, EA. All right, Chad. The Jets had a tremendous effort against the New England Patriots. Did a lot of things right, but ultimately they fell late. Uh, crushing 22-17 to decision because they took that lead, had a fourth quarter advantage, but just couldn't hang on. What do you think about the overall effort by this team after it's by? Well, I thought the effort, Eric, uh, was fair. Uh, I'm not going to buy into the notion that it was a winning effort um, because uh, the Jets didn't win. But I don't think it was a losing effort by no stretch of the imagination. And there were some good football plays out there. But I do think it was a lost opportunity to beat a Patriots team that was sleepwalking through most of the game. Uh, that was obviously wounded at the quarterback position as well as the tight end position. And it was a lost opportunity that the Jets could have capitalized on. And I just never believe in moral victories. But um, there were certainly some good football plays out there, winning football plays out there. And in the end, they didn't make enough of them to win the game. Why didn't they win? Obviously, there are a lot of things that happen over the course of 60 minutes, and people will point to turnovers and this and that. But why? point blank, why didn't they win? Uh, the Jets weren't opportunistic. Um, they played good football. They just weren't opportunistic, meaning uh, when the score is 10-0 to and you have a, a big pass play to midfield, you can't have a fumble. Uh, that woke up a, a sleeping dog, and they should have let that sleeping dog lie and continue to, to beat them down, and, and they didn't. So that was uh, one play that, was, that should have been a great momentum builder for the Jets' offense that turned into a momentum builder for New England. Um, I also thought that, uh, you know, there were other times that uh, the Jets could have drove the dagger in a little bit more uh, and really put this game away and didn't seize that opportunity. And when you don't seize those opportunities against Tom Brady, uh, he will eventually beat you, and that's what happened. And so um, they're just, they just weren't opportunistic enough. There were good plays made, uh, touchdowns scored, a good individual plays made. There, there was um, some energy and excitement, but all in all, not enough to beat uh, the top team in the AFC. What was your take on uh, Ryan Fitzpatrick's performance? He gets the nod after uh, missing the previous game with that sprained knee, and a lot of fans are clamoring for Bryce Petty right now. Todd Bowles stuck to his guns. He said, I'm going to play. Whoever gives me the best chance to win goes back to Fitz. Uh, Fitz had a pair of touchdown passes in that ball game, the one turnover late. What did you make of his game? Well, we'll talk about two issues. First first of all, let's talk about uh, Ryan's performance. I thought Ryan's, Ryan's performance was um, a winning performance for most ball games, but not, a, not enough for a team like the Patriots. Um, when you are able to hold the Patriots to essentially – 17 points uh, before the last drive and then 22 points total, you ha- as an offense have to find a way to capitalize on that and seize that as your opportunity. Hey, we don't have to score 28 this game, 30 this game to win. We, we just need to, you know, at first we just need to score 17 and then have a drive to keep them off the field. Or once they get to 22, now you got a chance to drive down the field and score and win the football game. So, 
there was uh, it was an efficient performance, uh, one of his better performances. And if it was against another team, it would have been a Jets win, but it wasn't because it was the Patriots. So uh, now the second issue is this: um, in my opinion, you don't just play players just to play them, just to see what they have. And right now, it is obvious that the um, discrepancy between Ryan Fitzpatrick and Bryce Petty is really large. Uh, there's a huge difference there in how the offense operates with Ryan in the game versus Bryce in the game. And that's only uh, from one game of watching Bryce play. But you can just tell, and I would imagine that that's what the coaching staff feels as well. And so uh, it's funny that uh, we talk about, well, we need to you know, give players a chance to develop. But the problem is, is, is that down the road, those losses still count on that team and that coach in particular. There's no hall pass given when a coach endured six losses because he was trying to play a young player and develop, and then when it's time to evaluate, they don't look at those things. They do, and fans do even more. So, you know, as a coach and a staff, you're trying to win games, period, in the story, and development comes second. You said the gap is wide, and uh, we I was at both games, but – from a quarterback's perspective, what can you tell as far as the way that offense operates between maybe a guy that's starting out like Bryce and is making his first career start, and then a guy like Fitzpatrick who's been with Shane Gailey for five years. He's been with these guys, his teammates, for two years here with the Jets. And like you mentioned last week, it's not like he hasn't had success in this offense. 31 touchdown passes last season. The Jets set a franchise record in terms of total yards. But just from game to game, what did you see from a quarterback's perspective the difference uh, with the guy at the controls? Efficiency and consistency. And so, for instance, first of all, as far as efficiency is concerned, um, you know, with Bryce, the the – in the game that he did play, and I'm sure this happens in practice as well, the easy ones aren't hit enough. Where with Ryan, the easy ones are always hit most of the time, 85 to 90%. And then the NFL, you have to hit, hit the easy ones. Uh, the ones that are gimmies, you got to make them. you got to make those layups because if you don't, it just makes your job as an offense even more difficult. Then um, – the 50-50s are being made more consistently as well. And the tougher throws and the tougher reads and those things are being made more consistently as well. So you're looking at an offense that's just more efficient, that has the opportunity to be more competitive, to put more points on the board. All those things come into play. Whereas with the younger quarterback right now, that's not happening. Uh, because if, if the staff felt like that that could happen or that they had seen enough evidence in practice for that to happen, they would have made the switch. If, if it was even close at all, I think the staff would have made the switch. It makes complete sense. But when it's not close, you can't just do that. You just don't do it just for the sake of doing it. You know what I think is being lost uh, during this whole quarterback talk, this uh, as we continue to go forward, is something you mentioned last week, and that stuck with me, was that it's not just the evaluation of the quarterback, it's the evaluation of everybody on that field. And this is not a knock on Bryce, but as to say, if you put him in the lineup, 
and you got some young guys out there, whether it be a Robbie Anderson or a Quincy Anunwa, who I still consider young. I know it's his third year in NFL. He's considered a second-year player as far as accredited seasons are concerned. But if you limit the playbook or narrow the playbook, then you might be limiting the evaluations of those players as well, right? There's no question about it. It all works hand-in-hand. And um, if you have one player that is limiting what you're doing offensively, and obviously that is the quarterback position because everyone else can adapt, then you limit the evaluation of the other players as well. And this notion that the only way you can evaluate is through game experience is false. There's so much evaluation going on during practice and during those meetings and finding out how a guy thinks and what his thought process is and, and how is he getting better and, and then watching that translate into practice. You, you don't just use the game model to see if someone's improved. Now, why do fans want to see the game model? Because that's the only thing that they see. That's right. That's the only thing that broadcasters see, the journalists see they don't necessarily see the improvements in practice. So that's why they call for it. But from a coaching standpoint, you can see improvement. The game is just the icing on the cake. Uh, The true improvement comes throughout the week, week by week, practice by practice, meeting by meeting. What is Quincy Inunua's ceiling? We we see him uh, on games like Sunday where he gets singled up against Malcolm Butler and makes that beautiful catch down the field in the first half. And he makes those explosion plays, and you see the energy it creates, not only on the sideline but inside the stadium. He's kind of a, he's kind of a player that has that kind of chemistry, got a fire attached to him. And you mentioned Calvin Pryor last year with the defense when the defense got in a groove. I, I feel that way with Anunwa. When he's involved, I feel like the offense is different. And then we saw that fantastic touchdown catch by uh, Q in the fourth quarter where the Jets got their final points and, and took that lead in the fourth. But, that, you know, do you see that, those kind of qualities? And what kind of ceiling does this guy have? Well, I think, uh, first of all, he's made tremendous improvement, and, and he is a guy that uh, is three years. I, I use that three- to five-year window because it's true, and I know nobody wants to talk about it, and people want to not believe it, but the three- to five-year window for most players, that third year is just the year where the light bulb comes on um, and things start to click. Um, and it's not three years for everybody, but that, that's kind of the sweet spot. That's the wheelhouse for players developing be able to see that hard work and that progression come to fruition on the field. And for him, he has really maximized his opportunity with the unfortunate injury to Decker. Now, the Jets have gotten better because they know now, going into next year with those three receivers, I mean, they're feeling really, really good about what they have uh, on the perimeter. And, And that's been really good to see. And so he brings the physicality. He brings a competitive edge. Uh, he brings a little bit of vinegar to the situation. You got to have that as a as a quarterback. That word vinegar means you got to have a little bit of nasty. You got to have a little bit of competitive juice in you. You got to be willing to fight and scrap and claw. He has that, and you love to see that in a receiver because that means those fifty fifty balls that you throw as a quarterback, most of the time they're going to be for you because of his nature and his ability and uh, and willingness to compete. 
Bart Scott mentioned Anquan Bolden when watching Anunua. See some similarities there? I know, I know it's early, and I know you probably don't want to put uh, too many comparisons on a guy so early in his career, and uh, Bolden has been a tremendous productive player for some time now. But just the physical characteristics and the way he goes about his business. Well, exactly. I, I see similarities in his physicality and his body style. Uh, I see differences in uh, Quincy's faster, much faster than Anquan Bolden, but Anquan has a better knack of how to get open, and that comes with experience and things like that. So he could have that type of production. I do agree with that. And if you get that type of production, then you should be feeling really good as a Jet fan knowing that you've got a young receiver that can give you Anquan Bolden-type production because that's that's pretty special. Jets fans are so eager to get to 2017, and there's still five games remaining, but you mentioned Decker before. you got to be excited about the wide receiver group here that Mike McKagan and Todd Bowles have assembled because Decker was here before they came, but they traded for Marshall. Uh, they've helped with the development of Quincy Inunua. And then they brought in these three young guys. Robbie Anderson continues to flash. He made the mistake. I asked Brandon Marshall about it. He said, ball security is job security, yours and mine. I think Robbie will learn from that. And his locker is right next to the aforementioned Brandon Marshall. And then they got a couple other young guys like Jalen Marshall and Teron Peak. So, you know, when everybody's thinking about the future, you got to look at the wide receiver position offensively and say, okay, we should be in pretty good shape here. Absolutely. I think you feel really good. That's probably the one area where going into the offseason, there's not much uh, to be done there. I think just individual improvement and really focusing on as a group how they improve. But as far as new faces, I don't think there's much uh, – be down there at all uh, they should feel really good about that group and and to be honest with you let's let's be honest here and, and, and of course this this conversation is for most of the teams in the NFL but we get so enamored with the records that we feel like because the team is three and eight they are so far off the Jets aren't far off at all uh, if you look at the game I can pick three games Bengals Patriots and Dolphins you put those in the win column you're six and five. Yep. You're in the playoff hunt. You're Buffalo, and right now, to me, there's no difference between Buffalo, Miami, and New York. Nothing at all, other than Buffalo and Miami have won those tight games. The Jets have not. That's that's the bottom line. So, moving into the off season, or even looking at development of players, right now, you're trying to, to me, development is developing. It's uh, if you if you ever been on hold when you call the New York Jets office, what do you hear Todd Bowles talk about? What makes you strong? Adversity. That's what you that's what you uh, hear him talk about. Whether it be him as an individual, this organization, and history of it, it's about how do you handle adversity. Well, right now this team's got a lot of adversity, but that doesn't mean you just blow it up. What that means is you these players and this staff have to learn how to fight through this adversity, get better through this adversity, to make them better for next year. And that doesn't mean you play musical chairs at quarterback or musical chairs at any position, or you blow it up and go find 53 new players. That doesn't mean that at all. It means you learn how to fight through this adversity together so that next year when this happens, 
you're on the winning side, not the losing side. Can you explain uh, what you would say to a Jet fan who came up to you right now and said, hey, listen, you know, I'm a Jet fan. This season is over. I want a high draft pick. I want you to explain why these five games are so important because you can't carry over wins from year to year, but we think about this Jets-Patriots game and the Jets weren't able to finish. Don't you have to create that culture? Even though you don't bring wins over next September, but if you win a couple of these down the stretch and maybe you have to make some critical plays in the fourth quarter, maybe have a comeback or two along the way, a lot of these guys are going to be here next year. There is a roster change. Personnel people uh, will make changes here and there. And, and there's every roster changes in the National Football League. But can you explain about the culture of winning and how it's never too late or too early to create that? Because some of that can carry over, can it? Because if you're in a huddle with somebody and you lead a late-game charge – in week 14 this year, or you make an interception in week 15, then that's got to help your confidence going into 2017 that, hey, we've been here before. So can you, can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. As a fan, and I'm a fan as well, we are so programmed to be instantly gratified, and we use this game as entertainment. Okay. Now, as a coach and a player and as an owner and an employee of an organization, this isn't just entertainment. This isn't instant gratification. This is about creating consistency, efficiency, and longevity. That's what it's about. A culture doesn't, and changing a culture and creating a culture doesn't happen in a week, a month. It doesn't even happen in a year. It takes years and numerous experiences and highs and lows to create the type of culture that you want to create longevity and to be the organization that fans want the organization to be. That takes time. And through that, turnover of players, coaches, employees does not create the culture that you're looking for at all. All turnover to me does is say that as a decision maker, I'm a poor decision maker because if I'm turning it over all the time, I'm not making the, the, the decisions before the decision. And we're, and we're just we're playing musical chairs and it's whatever the flavor of the month is. That doesn't create a winning product. That doesn't create a winning program. All that creates is flashes in the pan. And I would hope as Jet fans, you're not looking for just a flash in the pan. You're looking to get out of this mindset of just being good every once in a while and at least competing and having a product out there that you can be proud of year in and year out, regardless if you make the playoffs every year. But if you're competing for the playoffs and you're in it, and when you're not in it, you're right there knocking on the door, then you can be proud of that. But when you're up and down like a roller coaster, that's nothing to be proud of. And so that's why you're trying to create the right culture. And, and the right program for what you're trying to get accomplished. Well, I like this matchup coming up Monday night. I think that if the Jets bring the same energy, the same spirit, the same emotion, they tighten up a couple things, 
I think this is the perfect opponent for them. With that being said, before I ask you about the Colts, I just want to real quickly, your thoughts on the defensive effort overall. Anytime you hold Brady to 4-14 on third down and 2-5 inside the red zone, you got to be happy. Conversely, you're not happy because you didn't come up with the late stop and you didn't have any takeaways. It was a winning effort, Eric. It really was. Um, to me, as an offensive-minded guy, uh, and which I think defensively a lot of the times, it was a winning defensive effort. If, if I would like to see something a little bit different, you would like to see a turnover created. Um, and besides that, you would like to see every once in a while on those gotta-have-it plays, those down-to-the-nitty-gritty plays that have to be made, you'd like to see some of those be made to flip the switch, to flip the momentum. You look at New England, they did nothing defensively uh, that really stuck out, except, you know, the one big play to me was that was huge when Butler knocks the ball. He physically and literally punches Punched the ball it, yeah. out of Robbie Anderson's hands. That's just a heady football play knowing that your team needs a spark. That's the only thing I can I can see right now as far as playing good overall tough defense, doing what you're supposed to do, grading out well. Yeah, they're all, they all should be grading out relatively well. But see, here here's the thing. Here's the difference. Sometimes grading out well doesn't mean that you put in a winning performance. Because every once in a while, a great play has to be made to win. Secondly, I think this team, when you get in a situation like this where you're 3-8, and eight, you know you're not making the playoffs, it goes beyond the game of football. It just comes down man-to-man. And how much pride you have in what you do as a professional football player and how much, how, how much accountability you're going to have to each other to step up as men, not as football players, as men, and be accountable and find a way to win and fight and scrap and call. And there's a difference between when I was at the Jets, I trained with Teddy Atlas for a year. Hmm. And one thing Teddy taught me mentally was that there's a difference between fighting to survive and fighting to win. Fighting to survive, you're just playing, you're putting in a good effort, but are you really making those conscious choices to step back in the fight and truly try to win the game? Or are you just satisfied with being patted on the back for a good effort? There's a difference. And that's where this team is right now. And as individuals, you got to make a decision. Do I just fight to survive every Sunday and get patted on the back because I graded out well and, and had a good effort? Or do I really fight to win and make those winning plays to win a game? And that, that's a huge difference. Did you ever read Teddy Atlas's book? I haven't read it in full, no, but I, I had a full year of him, so I know exactly what that book's all oh, about. Oh, my God. Teddy Atlas, unbelievable intensity. And just using his hands, too. A, a great boxing trainer. We know he worked with Mike Tyson way back in the day. Cat skills. And then uh, trained Michael Moore actually, who became heavyweight yeah. champion as well. And uh, recently he's been doing some work with Tim Bradley as well. So um, this guy, it, 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 when he trained you, did you ever feel him just throwing the fist a little bit around? Because he's not the biggest guy, but wow, I would not want to get hit by Teddy Atlas. Oh, my God. Well, we sparred to work on footwork and Footwork in the ring uh, can be similar to footwork in the pocket, where you're learning, you're so aware of your movements 
that you're moving away uh, from one issue, but making sure you're not moving into another issue. And and that's that's literally centimeters and inches as far as how much you move not to get hit or get tackled, but don't move into another area and be able to remain a passer. And and I do remember getting hit by Teddy, and it was always when I would get hit by him is because I dropped my guard or I lost a little bit of concentration, and he'd slap me upside the head because I'm not I'm not truly focused in and making that conscious choice. I'm letting myself and my human nature slide a little bit and just give in just a little bit. And it was a great experience for me, and I loved every minute of it. Oh, God, I love his intensity, his passion. He's a tremendous teacher, and wow, he's got some great stories as well. Uh, quickly, college football. Right now we got Alabama's one, Ohio State's two, Clemson's three, and Washington is four. Uh, is Alabama in this no matter what happens against Florida? I went to the University of Florida. I have my graduate degree from there. I don't think uh, the Gators stand too much of a chance this weekend. But even if they won, is Alabama in the Final Four? I think so. I don't think you drop them out of the Final Four. I think for the committee, uh, they are hoping, praying, and wishing that all of those conference, uh, those conference leaders in that top four win. Their conference championship. I think so. I think I think so too. You're right. So Ohio State, are they safely in it too? It seems that way. They're in. They're in. And and so this is this is the issue you have with only a four team playoff. But you're always going to have those issues with who you know who's that last team getting in. It's just that with a four team playoff, it means much more than the sixteen team playoff because the sixteen team probably won't win the championship. But the fourth-place team, guarantee they can win the championship. And so, uh, you know, that that's why it makes it so um, intriguing but also so emotional and intense because you're only talking about four teams. And really, there's not that much difference. I'm really interested in seeing how Alabama performs against these other teams because, let's face it, the SEC is not the SEC this year. I mean, you look at the the top ten, and you've got four Big Ten teams in the top ten. Uh, other than Alabama, your next your next uh, team is sitting at fifteenth, uh, as far as the SEC is concerned. So, uh, and it's going to be interesting. You know, we think that the SEC teams go through such a uh, you know a hard schedule, but I'm not so sure that's the case. And so, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out as far as Alabama and whether or not they can make these other teams look like the SEC this year, which they just run through the SEC. The SEC, you're right, spot on. SEC has been overvalued this year because Alabama is just so much better than everybody else, and we don't know if Alabama is so much better than everybody else in college football. They will be the overwhelming favorite once the semifinals begin. Um, Clemson, Ohio State, I mean Clemson, Washington, excuse me, so you have Clemson, and if they beat Virginia Tech, you think they're solidly there. Is there any yeah. way that Washington wins over Colorado in the Pac-12, uh, uh, the Pac championship, and wins the conference, but somebody jumps them? Right now, the committee chair said that Washington and Michigan are very close. But how I'm thinking about it this way, Chad, how does a Michigan team that doesn't play this week, that will have not won its conference, that have that has lost two of three games, 
how would they jump Washington, even if Washington plays a close game and beats Colorado? Uh, I don't think a team that doesn't play uh, can jump any team that plays and wins. There's no way that you can uh, put value on that. Plus, you have one, you have another loss, <laughs> so that makes no sense at all. Now the question becomes: If Washington loses, then who is that two-loss team uh, that that makes the playoffs? Is it Michigan? Is it Washington? Is it Penn State or Wisconsin? That's the question, because what's hard to, to decipher, especially in the Big Ten, is that Michigan beat those teams. Um, Ohio State did not beat Penn State, but it's just a one-loss team. So uh, that's you know, you've got a conference champion, but you have a conference champion who lost to Michigan. So that's going to be uh, the, the biggest question. If Washington loses, I don't think they're in, because their schedule, strength of schedule, and their conference doesn't match up to the Big Ten. So it comes down to Michigan versus the Big Ten champion. Who do you put in that fourth spot um, if Clemson and Alabama win? Penn State would have to win big, right, for for them to jump uh, Michigan. I don't think they could win like a 27-24 game over Wisconsin and jump a Michigan. And even if Wisconsin wins... I think it's going to be tough for the committee to overlook the fact that Michigan dominated them head-to-head. So, I don't know. If Washington loses, Chad, I think Michigan might might be in good shape. They could be, but I just think that, let's face it, it would be really hard uh, because they look at all those criteria and then they look at, okay, conference champion. Well, that means something. I mean, it's not Penn State's fault that Michigan lost to Iowa. Michigan did lose to Iowa, and they did lose to Ohio State, and they did not win their conference. I just think they're the odd man out. If if Washington loses, I think you should take the winner between Wisconsin and Penn State. Uh, and, and, and you don't have the Big 12 involved in any of this, correct? Correct. So you got 30 seconds, three keys to victory, Jets over the Colts. <laughs> Uh, turnovers, big plays. I'll just give you two. Turnovers and big plays. Chad, enjoyed it. <laughs> we'll see you next week. All right, have a good one.